Thousands of homeowners could be at risk if their insurance company gets a bad financial grade. Inflation and the rising cost of back to school, plus the rising risk of storm surge in South Florida. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. The higher cost of food and gas is making this a much more expensive back to school season for school districts and for parents. So parents and teachers, how are you trying to save money before the first day of school? The home insurance market in Florida continues to be troubled. More than two dozen insurance companies may have their financial risk rating drop, throwing coverage for thousands of owners into question. And more homes, stronger storms, and higher seas, an increasingly expensive and dangerous recipe for our region. Our program, coming up, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. School year is quickly approaching, but, you know, this back-to-school season looks a little different and a lot more expensive for parents and for school districts. And we have inflation to thank for this. Back-to-school shopping is the second biggest shopping season of the year behind the holidays. A survey conducted by Deloitte shows that parents will spend an average of over $650 per student to get ready for school. That's up 8% from last year. Some parents are having to choose between filling up with gasoline or buying supplies for the kids. In the meantime, public school districts across South Florida are adjusting to pricier cafeteria food and supply chain challenges. It is more expensive to get prepared to go back to school in a few weeks here in South Florida. Maybe we want to hear from you here this week on the South Florida Roundup. Teachers, parents, college students getting ready for the next semester. Let us know your back-to-school season experience, your back-to-school shopping and spending plan as well. Where are you looking to be able to save some money? And what is going to be the impact, ultimately, in the classroom of higher costs? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. That's a toll-free number regardless of inflation. The phone call will only cost you a few moments of your time to share your experiences with us here on the South Florida Roundup. You can also tweet us at WLRN on Twitter. Catherine Kokel is with us, education reporter for the Palm Beach Post, reporting on inflation and the impact on education. Catherine, what are some of the big challenges, the big categories that school districts are seeing costs rise pretty quickly as they prepare for a back to school in a few weeks? Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh, you touched on some of those issues just a moment ago, but schools like the, the Palm Beach County School District like to refer to themselves as the biggest employer, the biggest transportation company, and the biggest restaurant in mm -hmm. a county, just because they touch so many lives and so many parts of students' lives. So school districts are really dealing with all the issues that all of those industries and all of us are facing at once, right? It costs more to attract and re retain uh, teachers. There are a lot of openings coming up to the school year. Uh, gas prices are getting higher. So the contract that the school district has for gas is getting more expensive and food is getting more expensive to buy and serve. So it's it's really like the, this massive um combination of all of the things where inflation is touching our lives. And I do just want to comment, too, on on school supplies. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to a school supply donation drive um, hosts and groups that put together free backpacks uh, for students for school. And they are expecting to give out 3000 more backpacks this year because principals are calling them and saying, yeah. 
we need the resources. I mean, it, you know, it can cost between 30 and $60 to put together just a backpack full of supplies for school. So really everyone in the school district and, and every kind of adjacent industry is feeling the squeeze of inflation this year. In fact, we're going to be talking with a nonprofit planning several school supply drives in just a few moments here, Catherine. Uh, he's going to join our conversation. Uh, food and fuel has been driving overall consumer inflation. The high price of gasoline, $5 a gallon. Egg prices up 20 30%, certainly. Uh, vegetable, fruit prices are all up. And we think about this oftentimes, the impact for ourselves as consumers, right? But uh, mm-hmm. but as you mentioned, right, the largest restaurant, the largest transportation provider, uh, turns out to be also an education, public education provider. So how is Palm Beach County Public Schools, how, how is it responding to these higher prices, particularly in food and fuel? They really just have to plan a lot farther ahead this year. Um, In Palm Beach, uh, we're cutting down. Students will see uh, fewer options in the cafeteria this year. Things like chicken prices are really kind of driving that. Um, And the school district is expecting to have to borrow more money for construction projects. Specifically to fuel, though, um, if if I could just dig in on that for a moment. The school district buys its gas through a piggyback contract. So it's not like we're seeing school buses going to the Wawa. Um, (laughs) You know, the district spends $11.1 million a year to buy fuel in bulk from a gas distributor that's based in Fort Lauderdale. Now, last year, that contract only was $11 million, uh, which seems really high no matter what. But that's $100,000 more this year that the district is expecting to pay for gas. there's 850 school buses in the Palm Beach County School District. So there's just the, those are the ways that we're going to see these costs inching up. And this is a five year contract. And um, it, it, no one seems to think that, that fuel prices are going to go lower. So it it affects school districts differently. Um, but we're still seeing the very real effects of inflation there. And is there a trickle down effect on teacher supplies, for instance, on classroom supplies, classroom materials? I mean, the money's got to come from somewhere. Right. And certainly the buses are going to be out on the road. And so as these budgets are put together, you know, weeks ago, oftentimes months ago, facing the higher costs today, how are they how are they managing that? How, how is the district finding the dollars that are needed to uh, to go to these essential items, food and fuel? I mean, that is part of of the budgeting process. And when I when I spoke with Palm Beach uh, School District, Palm Beach County School District, excuse me, CFO, they said, we know that this is going to affect our budget, but we don't know how much yet. And mm. that is just adding to the all of the uncertainty that we're feeling going into the school year. A lot of people are considering this to be, you know, the the first normal school year. Uh, granted, we, we've said that before, right? Um, but all of the inflation uncertainty just adds to how flexible we have to be with money, uh, both in our homes and what we can expect from our public school district. And is that uncertainty spread across schools at Palm Beach, uh, Palm Beach County Public Schools? In other words, uh, uh, you know, from from neighborhoods that uh, that are higher income to neighborhoods that are lower income to schools that uh, serve mixed income populations. Is this uncertainty? And frankly, is the effect spread equally? Well, in Palm Beach County, we have 180 district run campuses and 120 of those are are Title I schools. So we have a wide swath of income in this county. And and the way that uncertainty impacts everybody makes it more difficult to plan. Right. So when I'm talking to parents, uh, whether they go to, you know, whether they live in a 
well-funded neighborhood and, and in an affluent neighborhood or whether they don't, all of these questions are coming up as they're just trying to prepare their kids to, to go to school. So it's it's uh, certainly an uneasy time, but um, people are excited. I mean, it's back to school, It's right? back to school, yeah. Regardless, <laughs> you're not going to be able to stop time even with higher inflation. By, by the way, Title I school, just what, what is a Title I school? A Title I school is a, is a federally categorized school where the number of students who are in that school meet the threshold uh, to be considered uh, low income. And so generally, that's how federal funding is, is added to supplement those schools. Uh, but in general, a Title I school is an area where the children who are going to that school can be considered lower income at a higher rate. Catherine Kokel, stick with us. Catherine is education reporter for the Palm Beach Post. We're talking about back to school and inflation, the impact on school budgets, and also we certainly know the impact on uh, household budgets for parents and caregivers preparing uh, children to go back to school. Students, how are you preparing? College students, we'd love to hear from you as the next semester is right around the corner as well. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. For many years, the state of Florida has offered a sales tax a holiday for a back-to-school items. Uh, are you trying to take advantage of that? 800-743-9576. Maybe you just uh, got a, a new driver in your household, but they're still going to go on the bus because of the higher price of gasoline. 800-743-WLRN. James Knapp is with us now joining our conversation. James is the Director of Advancement at the Broward Education Foundation. That nonprofit is planning several school supply drives across the region. James, thanks for your time. What are you anticipating demand to be like this uh, back-to-school season and compare it to, say, 2019 or 2018? Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I think to your question specifically, it is obviously the demand's gone up, right? I mean, you, you were mentioning the stat that we're very well aware of here that it's a little over $650 per student, right? And, you know, it's up 8%. So that demand is is there. Um, we're expecting that demand to actually correlate to, to our school, to our schools as well. And so through the foundation at, at the school store, at the school supply center, it's already um, empty shelves and, and we're needing more stuff. But mm-hmm. as you were mentioning before, it's not just us asking for school supplies, you know, Every individual has kind of been on that crunch right now that, you know, and, and it's gotten tight. So even a lot of our, our giving and donations, and we've, we're grateful for many of the partners that we have and Bright Star Credit Union being one of them who uh, has has created seven drop-off locations, um, you know, a- across all of their, you know, their banks and, and just really excited for things like that because we can't be everywhere at the same time because right now even for us and we have a van that normally goes and picks things up but there's a gas cost and right. and there's so many different pieces to it that we're trying to uh to balance are, are you seeing uh demand come from uh different types of uh income levels than you than you've experienced in the past in terms of uh, households looking for help to uh prepare children to get them ready for school yeah i would say i would say it's it's a little bit more varied this year than it has been i think that Normally, you would see, like um, like Catherine was mentioning, right on the Title One school side, um, you know what what that has looked like in the past has been pretty consistent. Um, our teachers from all over the district um, are a lot more of them are coming in, um, and they're starting to spread the word and just trying to find out anyway. And so they're they're seeing a lot more students coming in unprepared. I, I, I don't know how else to say that, right? Mm. So, you know, they don't have what they need to have because like you said earlier right making a decision between sometimes it's, it is between food gas and a 
and pencils. And I know that that might sound kind of trivial in, in many ways, but that's a that's a realistic uh, issue and problem. In, uh, in not just our district, but in, in districts all across South Florida. James, uh, at the Broward Education Foundation, focused on public school students. Is mm-hmm. that correct, James? That is correct, yes. What are, you, what are you hearing, if anything, around private or parochial uh, back-to-school challenges with inflation? And, Catherine, I'll ask you that same question next. Go ahead, James. I haven't heard much um, on the on the school supply side as much as I've heard on the activity side. I think it's really hitting a lot more of the activities piece. Uh, as what do you a mean whole. by activities, like extracurricular? So more activities? of like your exact, exactly right. So like your athletics and your and your musics and and things like that. It's I feel like those are getting hit hmm. probably um, more on the on that side. But that's really all that I've heard um, on that side of it. Catherine. I'll agree with James on that. I, I'm hearing less so, but when we talk about traditionally expensive sporting programs uh, that require a lot of equipment, that's going to hit families harder this year, I think. Um, There's no better way to put it than that. Yeah. And what about uh, teachers? Uh, I'm a parent of two public school kids and, uh, you know, I've gotten used to uh, having a having a supply list for the kid, for the child. And then, you know, after the first day or first week or so of school, having a supply list requested from the teacher, him or herself, regarding some uh, classroom supplies. Uh, What is James, uh, what do you expect? What are you already experiencing in terms of demand there? Uh, the, the teachers themselves are so nobody's going to know what the student needs any better than the teacher themselves. Right. So what we want to do is we wanted to meet them where they were at. So asking for their school supply list and really being intentional about asking the community for those types of items. And we're hearing from the teachers themselves that they're, you know, at the end of really last year and even going into this year. And obviously now with school starting in, in, in a little bit, we're hearing a lot more need. Right. So it's a lot more of, you know, they're actually really you know nervous about students coming in unprepared and that just takes away from everything else right teachers have a hard enough job as it is yeah. um, but trying to teach to students who are unfortunately um you know in, in a disadvantaged position is really what's hard for them so when they come in you know the average teacher can kind of come into our, our school supply center and shop for uh the average is about 400 worth of school supplies for for their classroom that they can you know if somebody comes in without you know a notepad a composition book and they can actually provide that that's really a big piece to them so they can continue to you know give the lessons without having to slow it down for anybody because they're just not really prepared james for parents who may be listening to this live on the friday or uh, listening to the podcast mm-hmm. in the next uh, couple of weeks or so how, how do they take advantage of some of the school supplies that uh, the broward education foundation may have available yeah so we actually have um any anybody can contribute to the to the drive um so we'll start there so it's befdrive.com um, and if anybody needs school supplies, um, the Broward Education Foundation website, um, we actually, the school supply center is on our, is on our Broward Education Foundation website. And it's, uh, you know, I think that going through that, if you need supplies, you can actually schedule an appointment um, to actually have teachers come in and then we have, uh, we have an amazing team at the school supply center that, that just takes care of everything. What's the biggest demand? Backpacks, writing Man. instruments, uh, <laughs> paper? So so interesting how you know prior prior to even you know really getting into into the the depths of of school supplies and it's composition books is is number one Mm. as well as pinky pinky racers uh paper markers and and the pinky racer is funny that you even you know kind of kind of made that reaction because i kind of had the same one but it almost cost more to 
to ship a pink, a box of pink erasers than it, than it does to actually purchase them. So imagine with what we're going through with supply and demand issues, um, all of that. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, glue sticks, crayons, um, backpacks, all of those types of things. And some of the things that we offer is we offer, um, the opportunity if somebody would like to give rather than maybe bringing in some of the supplies themselves, if they'd like to donate, we actually obviously can do, um, in a, in a larger bulk rate and get the price down a bit and, uh, and help in that way as well. Yeah. Uh, finally, I wanted to ask Catherine you about uh, the food issue. Uh, we we certainly saw this uh, during the height of the pandemic. How important schools uh, are and were for uh, food distribution places, and how important they are in the uh, nutritional diets of uh, of children. Um, uh, the free lunch program is that is that at risk? Is that at risk of uh, of having some kind of cost, or perhaps having to be curtailed because of higher costs? So what are you hearing from the Palm Beach County Public Schools regarding those efforts and and that that program? Yeah. So despite all of the increase increasing costs and changes to the variety in cafeterias. All breakfast and lunch to students in the Palm Beach County School District will be free this year, regardless of income. Um, and that's mostly in part because of an influx of cash from the federal government. Mm. The kids, the Keep Kids Fed Act, excuse me, was passed in June and it pays districts an additional 40 cents for every lunch and additional 15 cents for breakfast served to students. And so while we are dealing with these, you know, rising food costs, children in our district will still be able to get a free breakfast and lunch if and when they need it. And I know that there have been some efforts for um, families who can or who can't typically qualify for mm -hmm. free and reduced lunch programs. There have been some efforts to do some like donating, fundraising to the district. Um, I, I've seen those types of things in my reporting on social media. So the at least in Palm Beach, students will still be able to get free breakfast and lunch every day. Um, I, and, and that will continue for the year. I also do just want to piggyback on what James said. Uh, the Palm Beach County Education Foundation has a similar school supply um, distribution set up. So if there are any parents who are listening to this in Palm Beach County, do check out their website. Uh, they can connect you and principals have enrolled their schools in uh, that free backpack program. So and there's just wanted to make sure people know of that. Yeah, similar efforts across school districts in uh, the four South Florida counties. Catherine Kokel has been our guest, uh, education reporter for the Palm Beach Post, and James Knapp, director of advancement at the Broward Education Foundation. To each of you, thanks for sharing your perspectives with us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, how do you know if your home insurance is in jeopardy? We are still in the season that shall not be named. Are you worried about it? 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting. Next week, the height of hurricane season begins August through October. That's when storm activity usually peaks. And South Florida knows how to mark that time thanks to storms during this stretch ahead of us. This year, 30 years since Hurricane Andrew, five since Hurricane Irma. This year also, the peak of hurricane season dawns with more than two dozen home insurance companies at risk of seeing their financial health downgraded. And that could have disastrous effects for homeowners, even without a storm. One big problem. 
the company that issues the financial ratings is not saying which insurance companies may see lower grades. So where does all this leave tens of thousands of homeowners whose insurance companies may not meet the requirements for their mortgages? What does your home insurance bill look like? What does your premium look like as the season uh, begins to uh, hit its uh, historic peak here in the weeks ahead? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576 to join our conversation. We are also on Twitter. You can follow our thread there and uh, share your comments at WLRN. Mark Friedlander is with us, Florida representative for the Insurance Information Institute. Mark, welcome back to Public Radio. Nice to have you again. Thanks so much for having me today. So the place I think we should start is with uh, Demotech. Uh, That's a company that few people are going to recognize. Nobody gets an insurance premium from a company called Demotech. It doesn't show up as as an insurance bill. Nobody makes a claim against Demotech. But that company can play a big role in what insurance premiums homeowners pay. So describe what it does. Demotech is a third-party rating agency that assesses the financial health of insurance companies. And it plays a really important role for consumers. While consumers may not know who the company is, they certainly understand why having a company with an A-rated company letter, basically, uh, an A-rated grade. Uh, In the case of Demotech, an A is called exceptional. That's the highest level grade they give to insurance companies. And what that means is the insurance company is financially strong. It has a capability to pay claims when there are severe storm losses, such as a hurricane. So it's essential that consumers would want to have their coverage with an A-rated carrier. And so what is Demotech doing with more than two dozen companies that provide home insurance in Florida? Well, first, let me back up a little bit. Three weeks ago, the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation issued a property market report. This is something that came out of the special session in late May, where Mm -hmm. now the Florida regulator will have two property market analysis a year. In their July report, they indicated there are 27 companies on their watch list. What does that mean? They have concerns about their financial stability. And these are 27 it, home insurance companies, not yes, life insurance or health. These are these right. are companies providing property insurance. Yes, I should clarify. Gotcha. These are Florida residential home insurance companies. They're domiciled. They're based in the state of Florida, and they primarily write home insurance business in Florida. So it's not other lines of business. It's not life. It's not health. It's not auto. Gotcha. So make that clear. So we have that news. And then last week, uh, there was a lot of of letters flying back and forth between. (laughs) We saw that publicly. Very unusual. We haven't seen this before in any other state as far I'm aware of. But the insurance regulator, the Florida CFO, the president of the rating agency, Demotech. And basically, it was a, a real strong back and forth that the Florida regulators were not very happy that Demotech was about to downgrade all these companies. Well, what we learned a couple of days later was it was the same, not necessarily the same companies most likely because we haven't seen the names of the companies right. as you mentioned in your intro, but it's 27 companies. So if you do the math, 27 identified by the regulator, 27 identified by the third party rating bureau, most likely all these companies are in that mix and Demotech is going through a very comprehensive process right now. In fact, they've delayed their process 
to do further investigation, yeah. further analysis, so that they can make a proper determine as a third party which companies maintain their A rating and which may be downgraded. All right. So all of this, uh, you know, for 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 folks like yourself in, who's deep in the weeds of insurance and somebody like myself who's interested in the insurance industry because it does play such a key role in the economy and, and providing uh, a risk avoidance for folks, it's all palace intrigue, right? Because it all gets down to the premium. It gets down to whether or not somebody makes an insurance claim and whether or not they can get paid for that insurance claim. So what role does all of this intrigue play if a homeowner has a mortgage? Right. Well, first of all, you talked about premium. Just quickly, I wanted to mention, we did a recent analysis at the Insurance Information Institute, which shows Floridians are paying the highest average home premium in the U.S., $4,231. That's nearly triple the U.S. average. So, but, so but we let know, me just pause there for a moment. Yeah, sure. is, that, is that a surprise given that most of Florida lives on a peninsula surrounded on three levels, uh, three sides of water in the subtropics that tend to have some pretty significant uh, meteorological activity for six months out of the year? Well, all coastal states are going to pay a higher level of premium. You know, if we go across the entire Gulf Coast, we'll see that. But Florida's is even higher than other states, such as Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, because of non-catastrophe factors. We've had several years of roof replacement fraud schemes combined with excessive litigation. Those expenses have actually put numerous Florida insurance companies out of business. We've seen four insolvencies this year already. So it goes beyond just the catastrophe, uh, you know, expense related issues. And so coming back to that homeowner uh, and if they have that mortgage and now if perhaps their home insurance company is one of those 27 that have been identified by the state regulator as one with some concerns and one of the 27 that also has been identified by Demotech, the credit rating agency for this industry, what should they be concerned about? What should that homeowner be concerned about? Well, typically, if you have a federally backed mortgage, which about 65% of Floridians have that have insurance in the state, if your company was downgraded you would be required to find a new insurer because your mortgage loan agreement clearly states you must have insurance with an A-rated company. However, the Florida regulator stepped in this week and announced a temporary reinsurance arrangement where citizens, the state-run insurer of last resort, will be acting in a reinsurance capacity to satisfy the conditions of federally backed mortgages. So that's the good news. Mm -hmm. The bad news is this looks like a fiscally unsound approach and could cost every consumer in Florida a surcharge on future insurance bills. And that's because citizens, this we, we often use this phrase, right? The state-backed insurance company of last resort. Well, what does that mean? It means that for every Floridian that has uh, uh, insurance of some kind, may be on the hook if a citizen needs to dip into their pocket to play claims. Exactly. Well, already citizens has grown to the largest volume of 
home insurance policies in the state. They're approaching 1 million policies, which is clearly a very unhealthy position for an insurer of last resort to be in. So they've got reserves very strongly capitalized. They are certainly well prepared financially for hurricane season, but now they're being asked to cover losses potentially of policyholders of other insurance companies that may fail during hurricane season. So the way it's set up is if your company fails, your claim is covered up to a certain level by what's called the Florida Insurance Guarantee Association. There's a $500,000 cap with this new plan that the regulator announced. Citizens will pay claims above the $500,000 cap. So in other words, they are in a position or being put in a position, probably is better to say, to pay claims for policyholders that don't pay them premium. So there's this idea of moral hazard when it comes to financial markets, right? And we heard, right. saw this when it uh, when it was happening 15 years ago with the uh, housing collapse, uh, where uh, companies may take certain actions that increase risk, but then uh, they don't necessarily suffer the financial consequences when that risk goes against them, right? It's the private reward social cost. Is that what is in play here? Well, no. He, he, not really here the situation is you've got struggling insurers in fact several of them would most likely begin the process of receivership and liquidation if they sustained a significant storm loss event so you've got all these insurers on the edge and certainly like i said we'll learn more when demotech makes its uh, ratings known to the public so citizens is being asked basically to help these insurers stay in business and to be the backstop when these insurers fail. And our sense reading through all of this is the regulator expects several insurers to fail. That's what we're seeing, you know, this hurricane season right now. Now, a special legislative session in May, you referred to this earlier, Mark, uh, was supposed to help stop the financial bleeding in the Florida home insurance market. And, and folks were cautioned, you know, it takes some estimated six months, some estimated up to 18 to 24 months before changes in insurance regulation and law to really take effect and and see impacts in the marketplace. Some of these new laws restrict attorney fees, provide lower cost of reinsurance for insurance companies. Is it too early to tell whether or not those legislative efforts are going to have an impact for homeowners? Well, here's the problem. Florida's property insurance market is facing a five alarm fire right now. You can't wait for the five alarm fire to burn for 18 more months and expect things to be better then. So what can be done now? What could be done today uh, here? Uh, What could be done the first week of August uh, as the height of hurricane season begins? Well, unfortunately, the legislature is not expected to address these issues again till the 2023 session next March. So we are stuck with the situation we're in right now. Mm. And that's why the regulator has taken what some have called a desperate measure to put citizens in a position to be a backstop for all of these struggling insurers. It is a crisis beyond proportions that we've never seen anywhere else in US insurance history. And it's, it's really a scary time for homeowners, no doubt about it. So the existential question here, Mark, as we take a look at that forecast and, uh, you know, look at the 
uh, uh, wind shear uh, uh, predictions and ocean temperatures and what's coming off of the coast of Africa this time of year. Do Florida-based home insurance companies have the capability to pay claims if there is a storm this year? They do, but if they struggle, there are a couple really important backstops. One is called the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund. Mm -hmm. That will pay claims if an insurer depletes its reserves. So that kicks in and they pay the claims for those insurers. If an insurer fails, then the other fund, Florida Insurance Guarantee Association kicks in. And as I indicated earlier, we now have an extra backstop on that one with this new citizens program where they'll pay claims if they are above the FIGA $500,000 level. So the key thing is, as a policyholder in Florida, you are protected. Your claims will be paid during hurricane season but there's no guarantee that your insurance company is going to make it through hurricane season. That's probably the bad news of the equation. Mark, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there as the uh, forecast is uh, clear right now, but we'll at least the meteorological forecast, the insurance forecast is much more gloomy than you just shared with us. Mark, thanks for sharing your experience with us. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me today. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Mark Take Friedlander care. is the Florida representative for the Insurance Information Institute joining us here on the South Florida Roundup. Still to come, we're going to talk about how hundreds of thousands of homes are more vulnerable to storm surges in this country, including many here in South Florida. That risk is growing. Do you live in a neighborhood where it floods? 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. Thanks for listening and supporting public broadcasting. So far this hurricane season, South Florida has not seen a major storm. We've already faced, though, plenty of heavy rains. And yes, we've seen plenty of flooding already. Now, as sea levels continue to rise in the years and decades ahead, so do concerns over storm surge, especially in suburban areas of Miami-Dade County. And construction is not slowing down as more people move into the region. The last big storm was Hurricane Irma. It was massive. It was strong, but it did not make a direct hit on the mainland in South Florida. Even what would be interesting is we could be like, well, what if Irma hit Miami? We could do that. What if Irma hit Miami? That was the hypothetical asked by Cody Fritz. He leads the National Hurricane Center's storm surge group. And in fact, WLRN asked him to do just that. What would happen if a storm like Hurricane Irma hit Miami? And he shared the results with WLRN environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich. As you watch this, you can see the overall extent (laughs) of the storm surge becomes can be dramatically different. So if I just raise this by a foot each time, the severity of the event increases. And describe that severity, because I'm yeah. a little bit like... <laughs> <laughs> if it looks scary, it, I mean, it kind of is. It's certainly, a, a Hurricane Irma situation with a sea level rise of, you know, a couple feet would make a dramatically different impact than it would, you know, today. WLRN.org is where you can see how a storm surge coupled with sea level rise in the future decades could bring Biscayne Bay west into South Dade County during a storm, flooding businesses and neighborhoods, some of which simply did not exist 30 years ago, the last time this area got hit by a big storm, Hurricane Andrew. 
So are you worried about storm surge and flooding? Have you experienced that flooding from a storm firsthand already? 800-743-WLRN. Perhaps you've seen a neighborhood sprout up in a place in the last three decades that you didn't see one back in the 1990s. 800-743-9576. You can send us your thoughts and experiences at WLRN on Twitter. Jenny Stiletovich, our environmental reporter here with us now fascinating, concerning, uh, to put it mildly, Jenny, your reaction there caught high as, <laughs> as, as that kind of slider looked at, okay, what happens with sea level rise? Um, first, let's start with storm surge, because that's really what we looked at, what what the experts looked at. It, it wasn't uh, flooding from rainstorms, right? It was storm no, surge. It was storm surge. So it is the water that is pushed ashore by a hurricane's winds. Um, and 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 it can be powerful. I think sometimes people misunderstand just how powerful those waves can be. Um, I talked to Brian House, who's at the University of Miami, runs the big surge tank over there, and he studies just how damaging these impacts can be. And he described, he said, the load, that's like the engineering term, sure. yeah. of a storm surge is so much uh, more powerful than wind. Hmm. Because, you know, when we when we you've covered hurricanes for a long time, I've had my experience with them in my 12 years here in South Florida. The focus is on the wind. The wind is what determines the uh, category for a hurricane. That, that's right. And, and part of the reason the Hurricane Center did this modeling for us and why they're trying to get this message out about storm surge is that it's actually flooding. It's storm surge. It's the water where they have more deaths. I mean, they're an agency that is a, an emergency, you know, warning system. And and we, right, think about winds by category or, or hurricanes by category of winds when it's really that, that water that does the damage. And that's what they want people to pay attention to. Okay, because what, what's the phrase now that emergency managers use about... You Hide do, from the wind, run from the water. Run from <laughs> the water. And that water is incessant when the wind is 70, 80, 90, 100 mile an hour. Hour or more gusts, and it and the level of water that is dangerous and and can be it is way lower than you would expect. I mean, they think with a foot of water, you know that that knocks you over. Just above a foot can start moving vehicles. I mean, hmm. it, it was much lower than I expected that they start thinking of like the real hazards. So we we heard you react to the uh, kind of the storm surge forecast with sea level rise expected over the next several decades in the what if. What if a storm like Hurricane Irma, a Category 4 storm, was it, I think, by it, when? Maybe 5? When it made landfall, I'd, it, it, was <laughs> it was a, a it 5 was, for a long time. It, it was <laughs> up there, certainly. But yeah, so but, but Cody Fritz, uh, the Storm Surge Center there, you know, looked at this and your reaction was was you know very real and in real time uh, describe what that look describe the area of south florida you were looking at and and kind of what that what that could experience with a storm surge in the next several decades with sea level rise. Right. So he took an early track for, for Irma that took it across Biscayne Bay coming in south of, of Miami. Um, so most of that surge, that flooding happened down at the south end of the county around Cutler Bay, the, the ridge, our coastal ridge ends. So when you saw the map, there was flooding further northern up in Biscayne Bay, but the ridge kind of held it close to the coast. But down, once the ridge disappears... And he had the map colored in red, orange, yellow. <laughs> the the red started moving farther and farther inland as he added the the sea level rise. So he had done he did one, two, and three feet of sea level. Mm -hmm. He didn't do a time series. He just did by a level. His slider map 
just showed the red going farther and farther inland. Um, and as somebody who's grown up down here and spent a lot of time in South Dade, I was I was stunned at how far it reached. I, I cover the environment. I spent a lot of time in the Everglades marshes. Yeah. You just don't think of storm surge as getting that far inland. Give us some landmarks that we may uh, uh, be able to kind of picture as you as you saw that storm surge, Biscayne Bay waters essentially just surging westward. Well, so so the, the he also like I said he had it in levels. So the red was nine feet and above, orange is six mm-hmm. to nine feet, um, yellow was three to six feet, and then bluish was below three feet. Uh, so the turnpike. You know, you don't think of surge reaching the turnpike. It reaches the turnpike when you get out at the, in those wow. upper levels of, of sea rise. Uh, things like the Homestead um, Reserve Air Force Base, mm-hmm. um, underwater six mm-hmm. to nine feet. Um, Turkey Point um, is elevated, so the reactors are, are elevated, I think, above 20 feet, but the roads in and out of Turkey Point are underwater. And when you say six to nine feet, uh, I'm barely six feet tall. Nine feet is probably about the height of the ceiling here in the studio that we're in. Uh, this, and we're on the second floor, so it would be we'd, be we'd be able to just step right out onto water. Right. You would be, I mean, I would be underwater at six feet. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so would I, yeah. And, yeah. and, and w- what's scary is you're combining all the hazards that come with a hurricane in that water. And so we're not just talking about the force it's of the, the waves. It's not the deep end of your pool. Right. right. We're talking about the force of the waves moving things you know, if yeah. you're, I, I mean, you've probably seen this too. I've been down in the Keys after a storm surge has come through and you look at these houses and every, all the things in the house will be shoved up against, including refrigerators, mm-hmm. beds, air, heavy things shoved up against one side of the wall because of the direction of the surge. Now, the other part of this study looked at development, looked at uh, uh, places where we have put new neighborhoods, where uh, new buildings have been built uh, since the 1990s. What populations would be impacted by this kind of storm surge and flooding? So so we found that initially, if you just, if Irma had hit today, um, there would be about 250,000 uh, people would be exposed to flooding from an Irma that hit today. So that's a lot. If you, under conservative, NOAA's conservative likely scenario of two and a half feet, which is, that's very conservative, mm-hmm. it jumps, to, it nearly doubles. If you if you do a higher estimate for sea level rise, which is possible, not the likely, but the possible, it's over 600,000 people. And th- that is remarkable. I it, thought so. <laughs> it, it, in a county with, what, 2 million, 2.3 million residents? Right. Uh, that is a substantial number of uh, Miami-Dade residents that would be uh, impacted even at kind of the, the more moderate forecast there. And, and at that point, you know, we're talking about evacuations, too. Again, you mentioned the, the hide from the wind, run from the water. Um, the, the Hurricane Center is trying to get, you know, more surgical in these storm surge forecasts. So they don't want people necessarily like the real Irma heading up to Orlando or Georgia or whatever, you know, just get to, to safety. Um, but so I looked at we each county have clearance rates for evacuations. Mm-hmm. That the stuff is modeled by the state, so they know when to issue evacuation orders. Um, when I <laughs> looked at the evacuation orders and the clearance rate times for Miami-Dade County, if they just have to evacuate the coast, they think that'll take about 23 hours for people to get to safety. If it goes inland, and I didn't go to 
area E, the farthest inland. I right. stopped because the, the storm the surge uh, uh, evacuation uh, areas are by letter A through E, A, B, C, yes. D, and E. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So I I just stopped at D, <laughs> yeah. and it's three times. It's 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 more than three days. Then worth right. It's uh, we're uh, talking like it was a sixty just over sixty four hours. Wow. We're talking with WLRN environmental uh, uh, reporter Jenny Stiletovich about some new reporting that she has done with NPR and with the National Hurricane Center Storm Surge Group, looking and modeling of what a potential storm surge may look like in South Dade County in the decades to come, decades that uh, are going to be greeted with higher sea level and in all likelihood, certainly more density, more development, more real estate development as population demands and uh, population continues to grow here in South Florida. 800-743-WLRN. If you live in these areas in South Dade County, we'd love to hear from you. What are you experiencing now? What are you uh, talking about with your neighbors and your homeowners association, perhaps? 800-743-WLRN. Describe some of these neighborhoods that, uh, that have uh, been developed uh, in the last 30 years and are uh, increasingly vulnerable to storm surge during uh, sea level rise. So, so there's an area, um, Lakes by the Bay, um, that has has developed intensely <laughs> over the last 30 years. And I just want to throw out some numbers too, just so so people get an idea of, of what we're talking about. We crunch the numbers. We use the University of Florida has some some great. They have a housing clearing database, um, and so we were able to look at parcels with structures on them and date them. And we looked at how how much development had happened since Andrew, mm-hmm. um, and we found that. And I'm Sorry, I'm going to use a little bit of a cheat sheet here, <laughs> but um, so we looked at over 85,000 parcels. That that's a lot. Um, we found that since Andrew, of those 85,000, more than 15, 50 percent, 52 percent had been built after Andrew. Hmm. So so that's that is a lot of demand, a lot of new supply, and a lot of new vulnerable properties. Right. I I, I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so so then we overlaid that with the hurricane centers. Um, flood the surging map flood surge maps and we found that um so of the 50 you know the 44,000 or whatever that had been built since Andrew over 15,000 would be vulnerable to flooding if Irma hit now um if you let add- me pause right there though that so that's not a forecast in terms of what sea level rise is going to look like in the year 2030 2040 2060 2080 that's if if a storm like Hurricane Irma would have hit South Dade County this is what would have resulted in terms of storm surge flooding. About 35% of the houses built after Andrew would be vulnerable to flooding. So, and then (laughs) if you add sea rise to that, it jumps up to 64%. So 64% of the houses built since since Andrew would be Tens of thousands of households at risk of this. Yeah. And so so what can be done? What is being done? Well, so in Cutler Bay, which is one of the areas that would get the brunt of like this kind of storm surge, they, that the village of Cutler Bay has actually started new construction has to be elevated. It has to be higher than what the county requires. Okay. So, so I talked to the mayor, Tim Mirbot, and he said that they are very, very aware of storm surge and the threats that it causes. So they've, they've added a higher elevation. They also started buying land when land became available. He said it was not a, an easy sell. It's a small village, not a big budget, but they actually bought the land because they knew that it could be used to hold stormwater. And- so that's what they want to do with the land. It's not building land to develop for housing or some other structure. Right. 
Right. But but when I talked to Brian House, the storm surge expert, <laughs> who who has worked with the building and the insurance industry, you know, to look like how do we make structures more resilient, he said it would be you know economically financially impossible to 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 retrofit re-engineer i mm-hmm. think is the word he used those neighborhoods that are that are already there and so is it possible to protect those neighborhoods uh, uh anymore as sea level rise predictions are going to continue for decades to come i mean with this kind of surge if you had a storm like irma of six nine feet and above um unless you elevate your house there's there's not much you can you can do mm. And what are the homeowners in these areas as you've walked some of these neighborhoods and spoken to folks and you've been out on the sidewalks with with homeowners as you share this information, perhaps uh, they know it. Right. Some of them were aware of it. Some of them learned about it as you spoke to them. What were their reactions? It's kind of interesting there. You know, people Florida has such a long record of rebuilding after hurricanes. So people kind of pivot from being optimistic, like, oh, look what happened after Andrew. We Mm -hmm. rebuilt. We're still here to being not optimistic. Um, I talked to one one resident who's got a couple of kids in middle school, and he was one of the people who said, we, you know, my parents rebuilt after Andrew, who says 20, 30 years are now when they're 30, in their 30s, I don't know if they'll be here. I don't know if my kids will, you know, have, a, have, have the South Florida that he grew up in because mm-hmm. he, you know, grew up in Richmond Heights. Back to uh, something more contemporary today. As I've mentioned, August is uh, when we traditionally begin to see the peak activity for hurricane. We've had a quiet season thus far, certainly, so everybody knock on wood at the same time so far. Has this new information, how could this new information uh, uh, influence discussion about evacuation plans, about how to communicate, when to communicate, and what to expect? I, I talked to Kevin Guthrie, the state's um, emergency operations chief and and you know since Irma they have they have taken a look at how they conduct in evacuations and when they issue orders but he did say they only update those clearance rates and model that out every 5 years mm. um i asked are you how much they're planning for sea rise and climate change and and his answer <laughs> was a little vague it's we're planning for it um i don't know how you plan evacuations without taking a look as well at growth and development. I mean, the Keys learned that lesson, yeah. and, and that's why they have a cap on building. A fascinating reporting, Jenny, uh, and the graphics online can really uh, illustrate what we're talking about here on the radio, so we want to invite everybody to look for this reporting at WLRN.org. Jenny Stiletovich, the environment reporter here at LRN. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Again, you can find that at WLRN.org and on our social media as well, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It is produced by Amber Mardigue. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen, news director. Our, uh, rather, our editorial director is Alicia Zuckerman. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Director of Radio Operations and the program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maris. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and supporting WLRN. Don't forget the South Florida Roundup is available on a podcast. Just search South Florida Roundup on your favorite podcast app. Our program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.